you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. As I continue in my series through John's Gospel, we've come to John 8. I'm actually only going to uh, preach through verses 31 through 36. So it's a little different than maybe what it says in the bulletin, but I decided to stop at verse 36. So let's, let's begin just by reading these verses together. This is the word of the Lord. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, You will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Amen. That's a reading of God's holy word. You know, the ministry of Jesus was relatively short. Think of Pastor, many of us know John MacArthur. He's been ministering in pastoral ministry for 52 years now. Jesus' ministry lasted three. But for much of those three years, there was a tremendous response to his ministry. Everywhere Jesus went, people would flock to him. He was often followed by large crowds of many thousands of people. Yet Jesus was really never interested in mere numbers. He wasn't building a ministry or a brand. He was building a people. And for this people, he was looking not for fawning fans. He was looking for faithful followers. Of the multitudes who flocked to Jesus to see his miracles, to hear his teaching. There were many people who believed in him as the Messiah, and they became his disciples. But even with this, Jesus was not necessarily satisfied because he knew that many people who professed faith in him and began following him did not really understand what that meant. They didn't truly grasp who the Messiah was, nor what it really meant to follow him. And so throughout the four Gospels, you will observe on many occasions that Jesus would challenge his disciples and these crowds who were following him around about these very matters. He would clarify for them who he really was, so that there would be no confusion. He would talk to them about the true cost of following him, so that those whose faith was surface level would either come to truly believe in him or be weeded out and only true disciples would remain. Now the text we've come to this morning is in John's Gospel, John 8, 31, 36, it's, it's one of many examples of this type of interaction that Jesus had with his disciples. Now, just by way of context, remember that Jesus had gone to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. And he went up at first in private. He laid low at the feast for a while because he knew that the Jews there wanted to kill him. But then in the middle of the feast, he went into the temple and started teaching the crowds publicly. And even though the Jews sent officers to arrest him, they were unable to do so because God was giving him protection. Now, the Feast of Booths, you remember, commemorated Israel's wilderness journey where they lived in tents, booths, in the wilderness after the exodus out of Egypt. And it had these water and light ceremonies involved with the feast 
that, first of all, hearken back, back to the light of God's glory, which led them through the wilderness, and the water which he provided for them out of the, the rock as they traveled through the desert. But they also, I mentioned, in the minds of Jews of that day, anticipated a greater experience of God's blessing, of God's presence, of true living water through the Messiah in the last days. Now, Jesus, it seems, utilized the symbolism involved with this festival, the Feast of Booths, to announce his identity as the Messiah and to explain the blessings that he had come to provide. So, for instance, he told the crowds that he had come to give them living water, that he had come to be a life-giving light to everyone who would believe in him. And while there are a variety of different responses that people had to him as he said these things, when we left off last time, we ended in chapter 8, verse 30, with these words. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Now you'll notice that our text picks up in verse 31 by saying this. So, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. In other words, Jesus was now addressing those Jews in the crowd, at the feast, who were listening to him, and had come to believe the claims he was making about himself. He's addressing them, and he's going to explain some things to them. Now, considering that so many of the other Jews at the feast did not believe in Jesus, you would think that Jesus would be overjoyed that these Jews had believed in him and that he would be careful to not scare them away. But that's not exactly what happened here. Rather, it seems that Jesus was concerned about, you might say, the authenticity of their faith in him. Because he immediately began instructing them about what it meant to be a true disciple of him. So first, in verse 31, we see that he explained the mark of a true disciple. Well, there are other marks, but this is at least one major mark of a true disciple. And you see it in the first part of verse 31. So if you'll look there, it says... So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now, if you're using an English standard version, it likes to translate the Greek word meno as abide. I'm not exactly sure why, because abide isn't really a word that we use much today. And its meaning is somewhat obscure to us. Uh, Other versions translate it, continue. The New International Version translates it, hold to. And you can see the connection, abide, continue, hold to. But those translations, I think, really illuminate for us the meaning of the word here. So Jesus is saying, to those Jews who have believed in him, that if they continue holding to his word, if they abide in his word, if they keep believing what he taught, keep walking in accordance with it, then they are truly his disciples. And by implication, you can see the flip side. If at some point down the line, They stop doing those things. Then even though they at one time claim to believe in him, even if they keep claiming to believe in him, it will become clear through their unbelief and disobedience to his word that they never truly were his disciples. One commentator summarizes the point well. He says, in short, perseverance is the mark of true faith, or real disciples. A genuine believer remains in Jesus' word, 
his teaching. Such a person obeys it, seeks to understand it better, and finds it more precious, more controlling, precisely when other forces flatly oppose it. And we could add, failing to persevere, that is, failing to keep believing, failing to keep walking in Jesus' teaching, but instead drifting away from it, questioning it, eventually rejecting it, refusing to comply with it over time, that's a telltale mark of a false disciple. In other words, one who claimed to follow Jesus but never truly did. It reveals that a person was not a true disciple in the first place. Now this truth, is reiterated by especially the Apostle John who wrote this book repeatedly in his first letter, 1 John. So for instance, in 1 John 2, 5 through 6, he had said, But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In verse 19 of the same chapter, he described some who used to be part of the Christian community and probably still claimed to be Christians in some sense, but had departed from the Christian community to embrace false teaching about Jesus. And look what John says about them. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, and you might add, truly, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it may become plain that they all are not of us. A little later in in the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 6, he says again, No one who abides in him, in Jesus, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now this same thing is taught elsewhere in the New Testament as well. For instance, listen to the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 3:14, he says, "For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end." Or that classic passage in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to verses 1 and 2, it says, Paul says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You see, the point of each of these verses, beginning with the one in our text, is that a true believer, a true Christian, or as Jesus put it in John 8, a true disciple of him, can be identified by the fact that he or she keeps believing what Jesus taught and walking in his commands. Whereas a false believer, a counterfeit Christian, will show his true identity by departing from the teaching of Jesus or living in disobedience to his commands. Now, let me hasten to provide two clarifications, all right? First, John is not talking here about perfection, right? He's not saying that a true Christian will never, ever sin. I mean, after all, if you look back at 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, he'd said to us as Christians, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's not even saying that true Christians won't at times commit grievous sin. Later on, in this fourth gospel, the gospel of John, we're going to see John describe in detail how the Apostle Peter himself 
publicly denied any association with Jesus three times, only to then have the risen Jesus himself forgive and restore him later on. See, a true disciple is still going to sin. Sometimes they'll sin grievously, but they will repent and they will turn again to believe and trust in Christ as they ought and they will be forgiven. It's when a person drifts and falls away from the teaching of Jesus in doctrine or in practice and refuses to turn back, refuses to repent, that they then show that they were never truly his disciple. The second clarification is this. When Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, he is not laying out a condition for becoming a true disciple. He's not saying, If you continue believing and obeying my teaching, you will eventually earn a place among my disciples. Right? It's clear throughout this gospel and the rest of the New Testament that the only condition, as it were, for becoming a disciple of Jesus is faith in him. Chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Famously, John 3.16, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Or Ephesians 2.8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Galatians 5.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So you become a disciple of Jesus by simply believing in him as the Christ, the Son of God. Not by persevering in faith and obedience over time. But what Jesus was saying is that perseverance over time is a mark, a a characteristic of a true disciple whose faith is genuine. A true disciple will keep believing in Jesus, will keep striving to obey his commands. Not perfectly, of course, but truly. And will not fall away into unbelief and rebellion without repenting. So, let's put it this way. Perseverance reveals a true disciple. It doesn't make a true disciple. So what are we to take away from all of this? Jesus is speaking to people like us who profess faith in him. What does he want us to learn? Well, first, he's informing us of the simple fact that not everyone who professes faith in Jesus is a true disciple. It might be true of some in this room. I know that isn't a popular idea. You know, many people don't think that it's ever appropriate to say something like that. If someone claims to be a Christian, they are. But Jesus doesn't say that. Not just here, but elsewhere as well. Perhaps most famously at the end of his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, right? He closes the sermon in Matthew 7, 21 through 23 by saying this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Why does he tell us this, though? So that we might avoid the fate he just described. He doesn't want, in other words, anyone to persist in a state of self-deception about their soul, thinking that they are a disciple of Jesus, 
who will enter into the kingdom of heaven when they die, when in reality they are not a true disciple and will end up in hell when they die. In addition, he wants us to be able to identify what a true disciple looks like so that we can accurately figure out whether we are one. He wants us to know that we should only be confident that we are his disciple if we are continuing in his word. That is, if we are continuing to believe in his teaching, continuing to strive in obedience to it. If we claim to believe in Jesus, but don't accept what the scripture says. Or if we claim to be his disciples, but are living in blatant disobedience to his commands in scripture, and we have no interest in repenting, you see, well then we shouldn't be confident that we truly are his disciples. As Jesus put it in Matthew 7, 22, it's not the one who calls him Lord, but the one who does the will of his Father in heaven, who enters the kingdom. Those who claim to believe in him but are living in disobedience to his teaching will hear these words in the final judgment. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So if you know that Jesus is describing you here this morning, then the words of this text are meant to lead you to repentance and true faith in him. Stop living a contradiction. Start getting serious about following Jesus. Because he has said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And for all of us, these words are a sober exhortation in one sense to keep believing, to persevere in our faith, to continue in the teaching of our Lord, to do the will of our Father in heaven, even when it's difficult. Because this is the mark of a true disciple. And we can be comforted to know that as John, Jesus will go on to say in the rest of this book of John, Jesus has sent us another helper, the divine person of the Holy Spirit, who dwells within us and enables us to do this very thing. All who have been born again of the Spirit will continue in Christ's word, because they, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, as Peter put it in 1 Peter 1.5. And that knowledge is not meant to say, oh, well, then I don't have to worry about it. No, it's meant to encourage you to even greater zeal and confidence as you strive to press on in following Christ. Well, after explaining the mark of true discipleship, Jesus went on to describe then the experience of a true disciple. So let's look now at the experience of a true disciple in verses 31b, that it's the rest of 31, through verse 36. So look again at verse 31. It says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and... You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So Jesus establishes who are truly disciples of him in the first part of the verse, and then he describes what they will experience in the rest of the verse. So first, true disciples will know the truth. You know, John 14, 6, Jesus famously said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And back in the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 14, the apostle John had famously described Jesus this way. He said, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
So, Jesus is the divine Son of God. He perfectly expresses God's image to us. He is the divine Word of God. He perfectly expresses God's mind to us. He's full of truth because He is God's ultimate revelation to man. And He is the truth itself because He defines what is true for man. So, you see, when a person believes in Jesus and they truly come to know him as his disciple, they come to know the truth. Second, the truth which disciples of Jesus come to know when they believe in Jesus sets them free. That word that's translated there will set you free. In this kind of context, it means to set free from domination or even oppression. It it clearly conveyed the idea of a captive being released or a slave being set free. But Jesus didn't explain what kind of slavery he was talking about here. And the Jews that he was speaking to were clearly confused and even offended by what he said. As so often happens in John's gospel, they misunderstood him because they took him too literally. Right? So think about it. Back in chapter 3, Nicodemus misunderstood Jesus as talking about physical birth when he was talking about spiritual birth. Uh, In the next chapter, chapter 4, the Samaritan woman misunderstood Jesus as talking about physical water when he was talking about spiritual water. Well, here too, these Jews thought he was talking about physical slavery here in chapter 8, and they balked at the suggestion that they were slaves who needed to be set free. So you see in verse 33, they say, they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham. And have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now it's difficult to know exactly what they mean by this. I have a hard time believing that they were saying, we're offspring of Abraham. And offspring of Abraham have never been enslaved. Because obviously that wasn't true. I mean, all you had to do was think of the three centuries they spent in slavery in Egypt. Leading up to the Exodus and then how they were taken away as slaves into exile by the Babylonians. That's probably not what they meant. Perhaps what they meant is just simply that they personally had never been enslaved. And this would technically be true. I mean, they lived under the rule of the Romans, but they were not among the many millions of slaves who lived in the Roman Empire at that time. So when Jesus claimed to offer the truth that would set them free... As if they were slaves, they're offended. But of course, Jesus wasn't talking about that kind of slavery, was he? He was talking about a slavery which was much more profound and which did apply to these Jews. So he explained it in verse 34. There it says, verse 34, look again. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So here Jesus is describing the spiritual condition of people like these unbelieving Jews, or these Jews who perhaps among them were not truly disciples. And he's describing their spiritual condition. And this would be the same spiritual condition as anyone who hasn't believed in Christ apart from his grace. And he says they're slaves to sin. By the way, this is a repeated theme in the New Testament. For instance, speaking to Christians about their state before they came to faith in Christ, the Apostle Paul said in Romans six seventeen, quote, you were once slaves to sin. And again in verse 19, You once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness. In a different letter, his letter to Titus, Paul explained the nature of this slavery to sin that people are in apart from Christ. And he said this, 
For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Paul described what this looks like, this slavery to sinful desires. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, he said, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, in our natural condition as fallen human beings, we are slaves to sin in that we are ruled by our own corrupt desires. In this sense, we're not enslaved against our will because it's our own desires, our own thoughts that rule us. And since our corrupt desires lead us to commit all manner of impurity and lawlessness, well, our slavery to sin also makes us captive to death because the wages of sin is death. This, by the way, is why we have to be a little bit careful when we talk about free will, don't we? You know, there were three major Protestant confessions that came out of the Reformation in England. There was the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Savoy Declaration, and the London Baptist Confession of Faith. And all three of them have a section that they affirm about what the Bible teaches regarding free will. It's a section called Of Free Will. And it, I think it aptly summarizes the Bible's teaching on this subject. It says this, First, God has endowed human will with natural liberty and power to act on its choices, so that it is neither forced nor inherently bound by nature to do good or evil. Second, Humanity in the state of innocence had freedom and power to will and do what was good and well-pleasing to God. Yet this condition was unstable so that humanity could fall from it. And then third, they affirm, humanity by falling into a state of sin has completely lost all ability to choose any spiritual good that accompanies salvation Thus, people in their natural state are absolutely opposed to spiritual good and dead in sin, so that they cannot convert themselves by their own strength or prepare themselves for conversion. You know, I think that really does capture the Bible's teaching, which in turn fits our human experience. Since the fall of Adam into sin... The will of natural man is in bondage to sin. This is what Paul described in Romans 8, 7-8. He said, The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. And this is the slavery Jesus was talking about in our passage. Those who weren't truly his disciples were in a state of spiritual bondage to sin along with the rest of humanity. This is the natural state of mankind since the fall. But his point was that those who are truly his disciples, their experience is that they have come to know the truth through faith in him and this truth has set them free from their slavery to sin. They are no longer slaves to sin. Jesus went on to clarify, though, that when he says, the truth shall set you free, it's not exactly that the truth itself sets them free from sin's slavery, but it's the one who the truth reveals. So we read his words in verses 35 through 36. Look again what it says. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, first of all, when Jesus says the slave does not remain in the house forever, 
He's just articulating a truism regarding slavery, which was widely practiced in that day. Unlike family members, slaves weren't permanent members of the household. And in citing this truism, who is Jesus thinking of? He's thinking of these Jews who he would be speaking to who weren't truly his disciples, still in a state of slavery to sin. Though they were, as they said, children of Abraham by birth, they didn't have a permanent place in the household of God because they were still slaves to sin. Indeed, when the new covenant arrived, they would be excluded from it on that basis. Whereas Jesus... As the only begotten son of God, well, he did have a permanent place in the household of God. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 3, 6, that Jesus is over God's house as God's son. And not only this, but as the son, Jesus claims the authority, the power to set slaves free, people free from their slavery to sin and death and to give them a place of permanence in the house of God as his children. In fact, you might remember that way back in the first chapter of John's gospel, in chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, John had said this, But to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of Blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Indeed, Jesus didn't in John 8, 35 and 36, he doesn't explain how he set people free from their slavery to sin and made them children of God. But the words of the apostle that I just read from chapter 1, they point us to the answer. It's the truth that God, that Jesus has come to reveal the truth of the gospel. That he is the Messiah. That he is the Son of God. That he's come into the world to deliver fallen people who will believe in him from the power and the penalty of their sin through his own death and resurrection. So, on the cross, he offered himself up unto God as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of all who would believe in him. Their sins were laid upon him, and he suffered and died in their place. As the Apostle Paul so simply put it in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Christ died for our sins, thereby delivering us who believe in him from our captivity to to death. And then he rose from the dead, having conquered death on our behalf. And he secured for us the promised Holy Spirit. Because he has made atonement for our sins and brought us into the new covenant to receive its blessings. And so, having believed in him as true disciples, he has sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts to bring us from death to life, to cause us to be born again of the Spirit. And that involved being freed from our slavery to sin, freed from slavery to the lusts of the flesh, freed from the penalty our sins deserve, our captivity to death, and to become children of God, heirs of life. I think of how If we go back to that verse in Titus, Titus chapter 3, verse 3, which I mentioned earlier, it says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But then he goes on to say in verses 4 through 7, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, 
we might become heirs, sons and daughters, heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the experience of true disciples. Having believed in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, He has set us free from our former slavery to sin and death through the cleansing and the renewing work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts so that we are not only freed from our sin, forgiven of our sins, freed from our sins penalty, but we're adopted as his children and enabled by the indwelling Holy Spirit to obey his commands from our hearts. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You know, we live in a time when people in darkened hearts are defining freedom as if it were the right and the ability to indulge their desires without restraint. Anything that would hinder people from indulging their desires freely whether it be moral values like the Ten Commandments or social institutions like marriage and family or, or even physical realities like the biological sex of their own bodies. Any hindrance to indulging all the desires of their flesh without restraint is considered oppressive. And they need to be overthrown so that they can achieve liberation. But the reality which Jesus articulates here is that our natural desires are evil. They are corrupted. Our fallen natures desire what is wrong before God. By nature we desire to rebel against authority, to harm others, to commit sexual immorality, to steal, to lie, etc., And then in addition to this, we could add that our fallen human nature is naturally inordinate. That is, we desire even good things too much. Whether it's food and drink, or sports and recreation, or various kinds of media, or physical health and beauty. And in all of this, our natural desires are fundamentally motivated by pride and selfishness, rather than the honor of God and the love of others. And because the lusts of the flesh are corrupted in this way, to indulge them leads down to bondage and destruction. We've all watched people destroy their lives through both the indulgence of their lusts for sinful things, drunkenness, pornography, gambling, etc., and their inordinate desires for things that aren't necessarily bad in themselves, like wealth and peer acceptance and career excess. By nature, every human being in their natural condition is a slave to the lusts of their flesh. They cannot free themselves. All anyone has to do to see if this is so is try not sinning in thought, word, and deed for one day, for one hour. For one minute. Or to put it another way, perhaps more striking, try loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself for any length of time. That's God's standard of righteousness. And you'll see how in bondage the fallen human nature is to sin. As Paul puts it, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And because the wages of sin is death, this means every human being in their natural state is also a captive to death. And they're helpless, helpless to deliver themselves from it. They cannot free themselves from either the enslaving power or the destructive penalty of sin. Only when a person realizes this, do you see? That they can see their need for Jesus. He alone can come along and truly deliver people from their slavery to sin and death. He alone can save fallen sinners from the power and the penalty of their sin through his perfect life, his atoning death, 
and his victorious resurrection. And he will do so as a free gift of grace for anyone who will simply believe in him, put their trust in him to do as he says. As Jesus put it, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is the truth, the truth that will set you free. So if you haven't done so already, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ this very morning and you will be saved. And believer, you who are a true disciple of Jesus Christ, do you see this is describing what you have experienced You have been set free from your former bondage to sin. This is the experience of every true disciple. You are no longer subject to sin's penalty because Jesus has taken it for you at the cross. And you are no longer enslaved to sin's power. The lusts of the flesh no longer control you. They don't have dominion over you as they once did because the Spirit of God has come into your soul and liberated you from the lust of the flesh and given you the freedom now to serve Christ. That has at least three profound implications for you, believer. It means that while sin does remain in you, you're not perfect, you will never be perfect in this life, but you no longer have to obey your sinful desires. You are able, by the power of the Spirit, To put to death the deeds of the flesh. And to obey God instead. Jesus has set you free by his spirit. This is what Paul is talking about when he says in Romans 6, 11-14. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. To make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Believer, I know at times you will have gotten yourself in such a pickle. Or you will struggle with something for so long that you will feel like you are still a slave to sin. What I'm telling you is, don't believe that. That's not the truth. Believe this truth, that the Son has set you free indeed. And you are able, by the power of the Spirit, to put to death the deeds of the flesh and obey your new master, Jesus Christ. And sometimes... Overcoming temporary patterns of bondage begins with believing that truth. It also means we as Christians must not define freedom as the right and ability to indulge our sinful desires. That's slavery. That leads to death. Rather, you must define freedom as the ability now to serve Christ instead of the flesh. Christ whose commandments are not burdensome. They're life-giving. They're wholesome. You know, when Jesus calls us to love rather than hatred, when he calls us to sexual purity rather than sexual immorality, to working so that we can share with others rather than stealing what belongs to others, truth-telling rather than lying, generosity rather than coveting, loving God and others rather than yourself, self-control rather than self-indulgence. He is not imposing on us. He's not oppressing us. He's not leading us down a path of bondage. He's saying, let me lead you in paths of righteousness that lead to blessing. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And finally, this description of the experience of a true disciple means that disciples should be full of gratitude and love for God the Father and for his Son, Jesus Christ. You know, just consider. Consider Paul's description 
of what God has done for us in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Listen to this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You're no longer a slave. You're a son, a daughter of the living God, and therefore an heir through God. We were slaves. As the old hymn puts it, fast bound in sin and nature's night. But in a new and greater exodus, the Son of God has set us free through his own sacrificial death, the great Passover lamb for our sins. Amazing love. How can it be? This is why. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be a lover of Jesus, a worshiper of Jesus. If we don't love Jesus, we have to ask ourselves, have we really experienced his saving work in our lives? But every true disciple has experienced this glorious liberation from sin. This morning we've seen that Jesus isn't interested in just fans. He wants followers, true disciples. And simply saying that you believe in him doesn't make you a true disciple of Jesus. Instead, Jesus has told us here in our text that a true disciple is someone who has been set free from sin by his power and grace and will show it by continuing in his word no matter what. May God so work in each of our souls this morning. That this might be true of us. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the richness of the gospel. That if the Son will set us free, and we are free indeed. And every true disciple knows the truth. And the truth has set us free. Thank you for liberating us through the payment of a price, through the death of your own Son, through his precious blood shed as an atonement for our sins, that we might no longer be subject to captivity, to the power and penalty of our sin, but now walk in the liberty of the Spirit as your very own children. We thank you. We give you praise. Please cause these truths to sink deep down into our souls. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.